last weekend when uh, I realized that I agreed to take the service this evening and it was Palm Sunday, I had a little panic because I thought, well, what am I going to speak on? I'm sure all the topics on Palm Sunday has been exhausted and everything that's possible to talk about has been talked about. So I rang a friend, a minister, Baptist minister in Somerset, and uh, I said, can you give me some ideas? And he said, well, why don't you talk about the donkey? Nobody's ever talked about the donkey before. And I thought, well, I actually, I have no idea what I would say about the donkey, how the donkey felt. So you'll be pleased to know I have not chosen that's my topic tonight. <laughs> because I wouldn't, re- I wouldn't really know what to say, and, and, and the message would probably be about two minutes long. And uh, this evening I chose um, to speak on the topic designer worship or designer religion or designer God or making God in our image rather than the other way around. And I was really quite excited this morning when I, when I uh, heard Heather and, and um, Steve this morning along the same trends and along the same lines about designer worship and uh, where we fit in uh, in, our, in our lives and our relationship with God. It's a day-to-day uh, relationship. It's a living relationship. It's a real relationship. So here goes. In Hong Kong, there is a temple called the Temple of 10,000 Buddhas, which actually has 12,800 different images of Buddha. And worshippers can go and choose the Buddha which most suit their needs best, the one that most resembles themselves. And then they can go to that God and they can worship that God because that God resembles them, fits their image, one who reflects their character. There are many temples like that in Hong Kong, but you'd say, oh, but as Christians, we would never be guilty of anything like that, would we? If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 3. I'll be going back and forth in the New Testament this evening and trying to to liaise between the new and the old. So if you keep your Bibles open, you can follow. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And I would suggest that ever since the episode in the Garden of Eden, man has been trying to recreate God in his own fallen image. A God who fits our parameters, fits our shape. I don't mean physically, but a God who we can understand, a God who we can control who is custom-made to suit our needs and circumstances. 
a God who looks the other way when we choose to do our own thing, a God who makes allowances and excuses for us, who adapts to our chosen lifestyle. And this was a temptation for the Galatian church that we heard a little bit about it that Linda read earlier. Just a little bit of background. Paul had established a church there when he first preached the gospel. You know, maybe Paul may have preached the good news. He might have preached from John 3.16. Who knows? But the Galatian Christians had understood it and they had received it joyfully and enthusiastically. They had experienced what we know as the freedom in Christ as, a, as opposed to the bondage you know, that, that the law had placed Christians in before, before Christ came, before the new covenant. And the Christians there were excited. You know, you know, can you remember when you first met with Jesus and when you first became a Christian, how excited you were, how much you wanted to learn, how eager you were? So they were very excited. They had just heard the good news. But after Paul left, things started to go a bit sour. It seemed that they were now losing their joy. Paul says, have you lost your joy? Because they had begun to listen to false teachers who were trying to draw them away from their newfound life in Christ, back to their old way of thinking. You know, they were saying things like, probably, you know, all this stuff about Jesus Christ is good. Yeah, that's good stuff. But you must remember your Jewish roots. All good Christians must be circumcised. You must keep special days. You must obey the ceremonial laws. And if you read the whole of Galatians, you'll see that it was a subtle adaptation of the message of Christ. Nothing terribly sinful, but enough to cause them to return God back to a comfortable image relying on themselves and rituals which replace spiritual reality. And you know, sometimes it's the subtle things that draw us away from God. Things like tradition, well, we've always done it that way. Or culture, well, in this country, this is how we do things. In this, in, you know, and it's, it's a subtleness and the enemy knows how to, uh, to twist things around, how to, to get to us. And it's, it's not the big sins. It's not the ones thou shalt not commit murder and thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not commit adultery. It's not the big ones. It's the little ones that draw us away. C.S. Lewis writes, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turning, without milestone, without signpost. And throughout the New Testament, if you study the New Testament, and I've, I've been doing a lot of reading uh, in the last couple of years, and it's very interesting. You know, you read all the stories, and, and, and this evening Andrew read that story uh, from Samuel so brilliantly. You can actually picture what was happening. But throughout the New Testament, we can see how the surrounding culture attempted to pull Christians back from a simple faith in Jesus Christ. Whether it was going back to the law or the temptation to live like everyone else and not let God be God. And not much has changed today, really, has it? 
The law does not feature so much. You know, we don't have the ceremonial laws of the Jewish um, uh, culture. But the soundbite today, what we hear is, believe what you want. Live how you want. You know, don't be a Jesus freak. Don't get too excited. Don't, you know, just be cool. Jesus Christ must not affect the way you live. If you read the whole of Galatians, when you have some time, you see that this is something that Paul kept reiterating to the, to the church, the Galatian church. And about He was so desperate. He wanted them to, to get the message, the message of the good news. You don't need to do this. You don't, you, you don't need to be wrapped up in the rituals. You know, you can almost hear the tenderness and affection in his voice in chapter 4, the, the, the part that Linda read to us. And at one stage she says, My dear, dear children, what has happened to you? You have lost your joy. You have lost, you know, you have lost what you found, the freedom in Christ. And of course he goes on to say, Have I become your enemy? You know, have, have you lost interest? You were, you were always so excited about my ministry and you were always so uh, willing and, and wanting to hear the good news and now you're not interested anymore. And isn't that so true about us? Sometimes we get so comfortable, you know, in our, in our little corner, our religious comfort zones, and we don't want to hear the truth. We're all the same. And Paul, you know, he was so desperate for them to come back. He was longing for them to come back to that place where that understanding and that joy and that uh, belief and that, that willingness to, to, to change was there. He, he even said, I am in the pains of childbirth as I plead for you. I don't know how much Paul knew about childbirth, but obviously, he, he must have understood, as, you, as, as many few ladies would, would be able to appreciate. He says, until I'm in the pains of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. See, we are to be made in God's image, not the other way around. And we have a tendency to want to make God in our image. All of us have our own opinion of God. We have our own view of God. But that's not the idea. It's not we creating God in our image, but Christ being formed in us. I just want to, to, to talk a little bit about another incident in the Old Testament. So again, if you have your Bibles and you turn with me to Judges chapter 17... And I shall just read for you verse 6. And then we'll come back a little bit to the story that led up uh, to that statement. It says, verse 6, Judges chapter 17. In those days, Israel had no king. Everybody did as he saw fit. 
I think the message, uh, the, the message interpretation of, of the scripture says everybody did as they felt like doing. Everybody did what suited them best. Of course, that doesn't describe the world we live in, does it? You know, it's this kind of pick-and-mix world where nothing is right or wrong. It's merely your judgment call against my judgment call. It doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you're good to your neighbors or you don't kick the cat or abuse your children and you give to charity and you tolerate any and every lifestyle, love is all you need. That's what we hear and that's the world we live in. We have our own concept of God and what he requires of us. And you know, we have a tendency to rationalize everything. We could bend the rules. We could leave out the parts we think are too difficult. Oh, this, this I can do. This is suitable to me. No, that's not quite what it means. This is what I think it means because it suits our lifestyle. And we end up producing a kind of designer religion based on how we want to live rather than God's call on our lives. That's so much easier, isn't it? So much easier, so much more comfortable. You know, more, the subtle things that hold us back. Personal preference. So if you go back to Judges 16, the story is told here about this chap called Micah. Now, I'm not going to read it all, but you can kind of follow uh, the story with me as, um, as I skim through it. it it's about, um, it's, it begins with Micah stealing some money from his mom. And what happens is when the money is stolen, she speaks out a curse. And when Micah hears her speak out a curse against the one who had stolen the money, she probably knew it was him. <laughs> and as Micah is scared because he, he doesn't want to be cursed, he decides to own up and pay it back. And when, she, when he pays it back, the scripture says, she blesses him. And it's just, that really made me laugh, because on, on the one hand, she's cursing, and then in the same breath, she's blessing. She says, the Lord bless you, my child. Then she takes the shekels of silver that he had stolen, and gives it to a silversmith for him, to make a carved image and a cast idol, saying, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. And that's a bit of a cheek, really, isn't it? Because they were forbidden by God to make and worship idols. But yet she was creating her own God and what she thought God wanted. Here I've got the, 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 the shekels of silver that my son stole from me. He's paid me back. So I'm going to give it to the Lord, give it to a silversmith to make idols, and I'm consecrating it to the Lord. See, the scripture says, the people did whatever they wanted. And then it goes on to say, then Micah sets up a shrine and he installs one of his sons as priests. So there he is setting up his own folk religion in his home. Nice little cozy sit setting. 
and he tries to recreate a similar setting to that of the Ark of the Covenant. He has a priest dressed in priestly garments, recreating what he thinks should be. And the worst thing about it is, if you continue reading the story, is the real Ark of the Covenant was just up the road in Shiloh. But it was much easier and much more convenient. It suited him more to do his own thing and set up his own little shrine in his home and do things how he wanted to do them. What happens next is that a Levi comes along and Micah ditches his son as priest and he installs this official priest. And then he says, God will like that. God will be pleased with me. He liked that. Look, I've just installed a real Levi priest. So God is really on, on my side. He's, he's happy about that. And you know, there are many times in my life when I've done what I wanted. And it's not very difficult to convince yourself that it's the right thing to do and it is pleasing to God. And sometimes you even convince yourself and say, yeah, but I'm doing it for God. This is what Micah's mother said. I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. And it's so easy for us to say, but I'm doing it for God. It's easy to do things out of self-interest and then ask God to endorse or rubber stamp them. And I found that with my own life. We put God in a box and we, we kind of, you know, nicely work out our own design of religion to suit our own lifestyle. And we rely on the fact that, well, God is love. He won't mind. But you know, God loves, demands discipline. God, God hates sin, and we must too. You know, a gentleman had, had, he had decided to go to church. He had never been to church before. And uh, after the service, his friend said to him, what was the message about today? And he says, um, it was about sin. And his friend said, well, what did um, the minister say about sin? He said, well, I'm not quite sure. But I get the impression he's against sin. And we must be too as Christians. You know, to have a real relationship with God, we have to give 100%. We have to trust and obey or go the other way. We have to live on God's terms, not ours. Not the ones that we uh, make up to suit our own lifestyles, to feel good about ourselves, you know, feel good, user-friendly. Some time ago, I was hearing about a, um, a documentary about a church in Barnsley, and they've changed their name to Church Light, L-I-T-E. You know, a feel-good, user-friendly, no accountability, no responsibility, just light, light-going, you know, but that's not what it's about. And just to recap now on the story that, that um, Andrew read for us in Samuel, uh, all about Saul. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn back, just a glimpse at some of the facts. I'll give you a little background about 
It's good, it's good bedtime reading, actually, the book of Samuel, the story about um, uh, Saul and David and Philistines and Amalekites and all the ites and, you know, that, that the Israelites were forever running from. All the ites that we run from as well, we just call it, we have different names for them. But that's a message for another time. Now, for a number of years, Israel had no king. As we read earlier in Judges, Israel had no king. So the people did whatever they wanted. And then the people started to ask God for a king. Please give us a king. We need a king. We need someone to rule us. So God gave them a king, and he chose Saul. He told Samuel to go and anoint him as king. Saul was handpicked by God. He was actually chosen by God. And, and that's great, isn't it? When God chooses us, he comes and actually handpicks us to do a job or a task or to work alongside him. It's, it's really an honor. And, you know, the, the Bible tells us earlier on in the book of Samuel, the spirit of the Lord came on Saul and God changed his heart. So the spirit of the Lord was on Saul. The Lord was doing things in his, his life. And yet, if you read the story of Saul's reign, it was a total disaster. For the 40 years, I believe, that he reigned, it was a total disaster. And eventually, the same God who called him to kingship dismissed him from the kingship. So not, you know, we have to be really alert and vigilant about our relationship with God. Because even though he may call us into very responsible positions and he, the, the spirit of the Lord comes on us and anoints us and blesses us, and we see, you know, we, we, we see his blessing and we see fruits from that. Saul did at the beginning. But for two reasons, he was dismissed from the kingship by God. The first one, I will not go into, but the second one, we, we heard about earlier when Andrew read it. So God told Saul to destroy everything, if you remember the story. He said, I want you to go into this place in the Amalekites, and I want you to destroy everything. What happened? He didn't. See, if Paul, Saul had a personal relationship with God, he'd have done it, as God asked. But what happened? And you know, Saul did not even know that he disobeyed God. This here tells a story about selective obedience, doesn't it? And selective obedience is disobedience. God said to Saul, I want you to destroy everything God had condemned everything. And God said, I want you to destroy it. But Saul decides, well, actually, I will go and I will destroy what I want. And the things that I see are of value, I will keep. So the scriptures tell us he left the sheep, he left um, some of the animals, because uh, Samuel said to him, what is this I hear, bleating of sheep? But yet, Saul said to Samuel, 
I have obeyed the Lord's, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. That's the first thing he said to Samuel when he saw, it, saw him. He said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But he didn't. And you know, sometimes we can get confused because we think we are carrying out the Lord's instructions and we are really happy about that. Yes, I've done that. And Samuel says, well, what? Why do I hear the bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And then Saul says, well, the soldiers thought if we kept some of the sheep and the cattle and stuff behind, we could use that to sacrifice it to the Lord. So that's all right then, because we're going to use it for God. But that not, was, was not God's instructions. He, he thought, oh, it was too good to destroy. And there, in his disobedience, he thinks he's obeying God and he's doing something good. Oh, here I am doing something good for God. I'm keeping all this lovely cattle, which we could use to sacrifice to the Lord. Wouldn't he be happy and pleased that we have this lovely, you know, we, we, we are going to actually use this to sacrifice to him. He would be pleased. But God wasn't because that was not God's instructions. See, whatever God has condemned is condemned. And we can't decide to go and, and you know, cipher through it and think, oh, no, well, this is too good to be condemned. No, God, you can't condemn this. I will keep this, but I will use it because I'm convincing myself that I'm doing the right thing and I'm living the way God wants me to live. So he says, we're going to keep it and use it for God. When Samuel told him, you didn't obey God. You know, in verse 20, it says, Saul says, but I did obey the Lord. I did, Saul said. He was convinced that he would obey the Lord. He'd killed some. He destroyed some of what God had asked him to do. We can't pick and choose. It's not a pick-and-mix situation. It's not an option for us. We can't pick the things that suit us. We can't do the things that suit, you know, suits our lifestyle and ignore the, the things that are difficult. It's either we're 100% with God or we're not. And, you know, some of us have even fallen in love with the rituals. We're attracted to the ceremonies. It's so easy to learn the language and carry out the rituals. But having a personal relationship with God requires complete surrender. When I was a little girl, and uh, I attended church, I was probably about 9, 10, 11, didn't quite understand what it was all about, didn't know what a real relationship with God meant. I remember I used to run into church every Sunday morning or evening. And the first thing I do was look up you know, on, on, on the screen to see what numbers we were going to be singing at church that evening. And I'd look them up and I'd think, oh, I like that one. That's a good one. That's a lovely tempo. Oh, I like that one. Oh, I like that one. Oh, I like that one. Now when I have to play my clarinet, I look at the songs and I think, crumbs, six sharps, I'll never be able to play that. But you see, sometimes we could get so wrapped up in the rituals. We could even be in love with the worship and not be in love with the person we're worshipping. We could be wrapped up in the, the church and, and everything around it and all, all the activity. 
the rituals and lose the spiritual reality in the process. We sang earlier, when the music fades. And I wonder, sometimes, what are we worshipping? Is it our time and energy, work, sport, talents, Welsh rugby team? Sorry, I, I just thought I had to say that. I love sports. But you know, what controls our minds and thoughts? The creator or the created? Some time ago, Simon, Simon spoke on the, the creator and the created. We are the created. And our goal in life is to reflect his character. You know, some of us, well, all of us know there's a third per- person in the Trinity. But sometimes it's so easy to ignore his presence. We treat the Holy Spirit sometimes as a sleeping partner. But in reality, he's the one whom Jesus has sent to work in us. You have all the C letters. He convicts, he corrects, he challenges, he converts, he changes. So this evening, you know, we, we, I just want us to think a little bit. Of, are we putting God in a box? Because that allows us to be safe. You know, it doesn't interrupt our lifestyle. It allows us to do what we want, when we want, and how we want. Because we've got God in this little box. And, 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 and if we do what we want and we believe that it's right, he will rub a stamp and endorse what we do. Especially if we say, well, it's just for you, Lord. But, you know, God is wilder than that. He's absolutely wilder than that. He, he's... He is exciting. You know, there's a song we sing, You are amazing, God. He is untamable. You cannot tame God. He is too big. And God will have his way. He will have his way. God is just too big, too great for us to put him in a little box. And you know, when we do that, we miss the things that God has for us. You know, as Christians, we have the power of God at our disposal. Wow! Isn't that exciting? Does that make you want to, to jump for joy and, and, and can't wait to wake up the next day to see what God will do in your life? We have the power of God at our disposal. You know, when you read Paul's writings to the early church, He so often pleads with the new converts to let go and let God. In Ephesians 5, he tells the the Christians there, be imitators of Jesus Christ. He says to the Christians at Rome, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And to the Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, but Christ. I no longer live, sorry, but Christ lives in me. You know, the goal of of all of us and every Christian is that the image of Jesus Christ be formed in us in ever greater measure, in every greater measure. Sorry, in ever, ever greater measure. For Christ to be formed in us 
we need to let go and allow him to live in us. You know, it's not our place to make God in our image. It's the other way around. And forming little designer worships and designer God and designer religion that suits us. It's not going to work. Christ is going to be formed. As you know, Paul uses this phrase, when we become Christian, we are pregnant with Christ. And I, I've never been, you know, been blessed in that way, so I've never experienced that. But, you know, I was very privileged to watch uh, my, my next-door neighbor as, um, as she went through her first pregnancy. And every time I saw her, she was a little bit bigger. Probably didn't see her for two weeks. And I would say, oh, Sam, you're a little bit bigger than I. And she said, oh, thank you. <laughs> Not really appreciating the comment, but every time I saw her, she was bigger. It was bigger. We're supposed to be pregnant. You know, when, as Christ has been formed in us, it's, it's supposed to be a growing thing, a getting bigger thing. It, it you know, it just happens. That's what happens when when pregnancy is taking place, it gets bigger and bigger, new life. It just grows, doesn't it? And this is what, as Christians, as Christ has been formed in us, Paul used that to describe it so uh, adequately there. We ought to be pregnant with Christ. So for Christ in us, to be formed in us, we need to let go and allow him to live in us.